Ed Cusack and Mr. Kieran Hines. Oh, Now, Chanel, I know you're partial to a cuppa, so do you want me to pour you one now? A cup of tea. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the National Theatre Tea Party. <laughs> now, I've been trying to think, as you know, I like to kind of introduce my guests by running through the great uh, highlights of their careers, but if I did that with these two distinguished thespians, it would last longer than the average EU summit, this particular in conversation. So I'll confine myself to some of the favourites and... I don't think I've seen a better production of Much Ado About Nothing before or since than the one that Sinead was in with Derek Jacobit, the RSC, some time ago. I hope you were lucky enough to see that. She was last at the <laughs> National giving, it was practically a one-woman performance, I think, an Our Lady of Sligo, wonderful performance, which rightly impressed everyone. Then there was Rock and Roll, Tom Stoppard's play in London and on Broadway. And recently, Sinead's been part of The Bridge Project, which was the old vacant Sam Mendes and she played on a sky in the cherry orchard at the Old Vic and gave a wonderful Paulina in The Winter's Tale too. Now, Mr. Kieran Hines, I think I first spotted when he was at the RSC as well some time ago, and that sort of air of brooding menace that he exudes, which I does, find so does. irresistible. <laughs> uh, Kieran's been at the National World recently in Burnt by the Sun, and if you, longer memories, or people with longer memories will, of course, go back to Closer, Patrick Marber's play in which... Uh, Kieran created the role, which he took to the West. Did you go to Broadway with it too? Yeah, Kieran? I went to Broadway. Did. I didn't go to the West End. It's More recently, he's been expanding into <laughs> film and television, and we've seen him in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, of course, and you're in The Woman in Black, aren't you, Kieran, in the latest yeah. Harry Potter. And in, I see you're playing the devil in something called Ghost Rider's Revenge, which <laughs> I can't wait to see. Yeah, that might be very unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> now... How long have you known each other? Have you worked together before? I could, I could spot one film that you did together recently. Is there any more than that? How long have you been... What? Tiger's Tale. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was John Gorman's film. But have you known each other for some time? Well, I feel I've known him forever. I feel I'm married to him. I am married <laughs> to him, actually. Um, we've worked on stage. This is our second time on stage. We did a Conor McPherson play at the Abbey called The Birds. Um, or The Gate, I think. Oh, sorry, the at The Gate, gate. yeah. yeah. Um, how many years? Two years? It was three so years? It, it, almost exactly two years ago. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, we did a, a film called Tiger's Tale for John Borman. Um, oh, yeah, and then we did a radio of The Winter's Tale with him playing Leontes and me playing uh, Hermione. Hermione on the radio. Oh, yeah. well, so you, you really are quite a, a sort of... Luntz type uh, relationship. We are Sorry, a double act. What did you say, Luntz? Luntz. <laughs> L for Luntz, yes. Right. And are you going to be working together quite soon, if I... Oh, does my research accurate? The C, the film of John Banville's novel, are you in well, that? Well, I'm attached to it. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> this is like a living nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> it's like what you see on stage or whatever is going on in real life all the time. It's great. Uh, I think so, yeah. Yes. Yes! <laughs> I mean, I, I have to say that that has been in the making for quite a while. Three, four years. So whether yeah. it gets its funding, I don't know. It's a wonderful novel. He won the Booker Prize with it, of course. Yeah. And uh, if you haven't read it, I would urge you to read it because it's really... I read it... I was reading it because I was about to interview him at the Edinburgh 
book festival, and I read it. I, I couldn't put it down. You uh, see, you know, page after page after page. And the screenplay is really yes. good as well. So, well, good luck with that. I can't wait to see it. Hopefully with the two of you. (laughs) We can't wait to do it. Who knows? (laughs) Now, tell us about Juno and the Peacock. I mean, playing a show like that at the Abbey, does it, is there a sense of history about it? I mean, is there a sense of atmosphere and all those great actors who've done that play in those, on on that stage? I mean, do you feel sort of connected to the spirit of the place in that respect? Um, yeah, for us in Ireland, it's like one of the big, big heavyweight plays. And it's interesting when we bring it over here that not everybody knows it. But for us, deep in the sort of DNA and the psyche, politically, culturally, uh, and also when he wrote it at the time, it was a huge uh, kick forward into a semi-kind of realist drama of what was really going on at the time. Uh, so it, there is a lot of baggage with it. And, um, of course, uh, it's been performed many times at the Abbey. It almost feels like it belongs there. But uh, I'd say in my case, because uh, I'm uh, from the north of Ireland, from Belfast, and coming down to play in Dublin uh, had its own little peccadillo. But um, I think for Sinead, uh, that's as big a baggage as you get for an actress is to go and take on Juno in the Abbey Theatre in Dublin. Particularly when you were thrown out at the Abbey Theatre, aged 21, 22, they threw me out of the Abbey because they said I couldn't be heard past the first three rows of the stalls. (laughs) Well, that was their excuse, but actually, I think the reason they threw me out, I'll do this very quickly because Kieran's heard it before, but... That when the new abbey, the, the old abbey was burnt down, and when they built the new abbey, which is the theatre that we played at, um, they had a big opening sort of occasion, and they were doing a Louis McNeese play called, appropriately enough, One for the Grave. And, uh, <laughs> and I was playing every... It was sort of loosely based on the everyman story. And I was playing everyman's first love. And I was supposed to symbolise all that was pure and innocent and untouched by human hand. And we had a very touching scene down the front, myself and an actor called Pat Laid, who was very fat, playing everyman. And we had this... And I had to look out into the middle distance and utter the immortal line, look at that couple in the punt over there. (laughs) You're very smart! (laughs) You're very smart! So one of the actors in the Abbey comedy said to me, oh, be careful of that, Sinead, be careful. I said, why? He said, oh, couple in the punt, couple in the punt. I said, Des, what have you done? I would not have been aware of it at all. And on the first night, <laughs> I was down on the front, pointing out in the middle, look at that couple in, I won't say the word, <laughs> out there. And because I was so young and inexperienced, I didn't just carry on and they would have gone, did she really say that? I didn't. I backtracked and tried to make it right. I wish time the audience was in an uproar. <laughs> so it was very shortly afterwards that I was kicked out of the alley. Right. Well, so no wonder. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> sort of Jim Nochty moment. <laughs> yes, Jim Nochty moment. Oh, dear. Oh, but so coming back mm-hmm. to play something like Juno was intimidating beyond belief. I mean, I, I, I remember standing in the wings just before we went on for the first preview, and thinking to myself, I can't be doing this. 
It's the most masochistic thing that I've ever done in my entire life. Um, but I love the play with a passion, and I love Juno with a passion. So I did it for Juno, really, for her. I thought, I want to do this woman. Does it still, I mean, it's set in the Civil War. Does it still have a kind of uh, ability, the play, to shock an audience, to, to, to provoke an audience, to anger and sadden an audience? I think without doubt. I think because the things that, you know, uh, Casey may have started as a sort of, I don't know, a, a socialist or a nationalist socialist, a small, small island, but he became an international socialist. And so what he wrote actually translates to anywhere at any time. It's life with all its horror and bitterness and bile and love and despair and hope and people being so quietly heroic at the same time as other people being totally pig ignorant, but it's all one huge seething mass of humanity. And uh, that's why I think he'll always, always be relevant, mm. even though it's particularly set at the time of the Civil War in 1920 <laughs> in Ireland. But there's enough going on beyond that. And, and <clears throat> I think almost for the first time ever, um, the working class was put absolutely central to the action. If you think about it, in most playwriting up until that point, you would have the working class as a sort of peripheral um, mm. colour around the edges of plays. But he made them absolutely central and about their... Because he was so angry. I mean, I call this play um, a shout of anger from O'Casey. He was so angry about what were happening to the working people of Ireland, particularly Dublin, um, and how they were let down by the nationalists, by the labour movement, by all those highfalutin, what I call high politics, all that sort of posturing that was going on at the time, and then the t horror of civil war, and how that impacted on these people, and always, always to their disadvantage, never to their advantage. And in the end, O'Casey left the country and came to England and lived in England um, because it was just so unbearable to watch what was happening um, to the people he cared about. So Juno and the Peco is a great classic, but you presumably have to approach it almost as if it were a new play and there wasn't all this tradition and history. I mean, is that, um, is that tricky to do, to try and bring your own... Uh, ideas, your own intel intelligence and sensitivity to these parts. I don't think there's any other way of doing it, mm -hmm. really. I think, I mean, everything is of its time. And, um, of course, even though we may deny it, sometimes we see things, we're influenced by them, either you positively or subliminally. And, uh, but in the end, when we go to work together in a piece like that, you hope to start with an empty slate and not bring the history with you. You know it has history, and it's about making it as fresh and as uh, a, a new contact between the company to let it uh, rekindle and fire mm -hmm. off again. And what's interesting was in, in, uh, in Dublin, certainly, I mean, here at the National, because you've got a very international audience, and um, the contact that we had in Dublin was sort of almost immediate, because they know the play at it's from there. And here, there's a mixture of nationalities watching it. So it's quite interesting, the connection. There's often a great... Uh, you understand the connection of people watching it by the silence. What you don't understand is the contact of the layers of humour that keep rolling out of it. Um, but when we were in Dublin, it was interesting to know that there was a new generation 
who didn't know the play. You assume everybody knows it, or everybody's taught it, but in fact, uh, a younger generation coming from it and were mighty moved by the entire OKC creation that he'd written about. I think an audience today would wonder why Juno <laughs> stays with the captain. What, what is it, do you think, has brought them together? What is it that keeps their well, relationship? It's, it's very interesting. Mm. I, I, Kieran and I never talked, did we, about... Uh, it sounds very odd, but we never talked about our relationship. Our relationship grew uh, between Jack and Juno during the rehearsal process, and it was as if he and I were in complete accord as to the genesis of that relationship. And apparently, from what we can gather from what people have said who have seen this particular production, that it's rarely played that those two people love each other. Now, I took it for granted in my reading of the play, um, and I had seen loads of productions, but this particular aspect of the play had not um, sunk in. But she stays with him, one, because it is obvious in their repartee together, in their... Uh, yes, he complains about her all the time and she complains about him, but there is, at base, mm. a connection between those two people. But then the other thing we discovered when we were doing our research, and we did a huge amount of research, is that the women in the tenements in Dublin who lived lives of indescribable um, squalor and deprivation. But they were the ones, the w because the men had no employment. There was no employment. That's what O'Casey hated. And the men, their only solace was the pub. So for me, I look at him and I see a man that actually had poetry in his soul. He, after all, says, what is the stars? He had poetry in his soul once upon a time. Maybe he had a, even a work, work ethic. But in the Dublin that he was living in at that time, there was no employment. And he became the man he became. Joxer is a whole different uh, kettle of fish. Joxen, uh, Joxer is a sort of cancer of Ireland. The opportunist, nasty... Uh, well, there's all sorts of words to describe yes. it. <laughs> but, but there is something about the captain. Yes, he's a wastrel. Yes, he's... Uh, uh, a messer, yes, he's a liar, he's all those things, but there's something there that she must have loved once. Um, but mm. also we discovered in our research that the women in the tenements hardly ever left their men, n n uh, almost never. So Juno's act of courage when she says, I'll go, if Mary goes, I'll go with her, um, was an extraordinary act of courage, and it would have been a very, very rare woman who would have done that. It was obviously, I know Casey, I think, if you know it, also because the Ireland being very governed by the Catholic Church for many years had a whole yeah. sort of steel embrace on what went on. And so those were the, the laws of the land, apart from the politics and the deprivation. There was this very strong, and indeed a lot of people, fair enough, found solace in it. You know, and it gave them a, a reason to go on and they asked for help and they believed in that idea of faith, which is always good. But... Um, it was also an idea of keeping people uh, subjected uh, to where they want to be. And the, the church at that time wasn't great in moving things forward in a more uh, social way, <laughs> shall we say. It's putting it politely, isn't it? Yeah, well, here's a colour, here's a mast. <laughs> but O'Casey doesn't seem to think very highly of any Irishman. They don't, men don't come out of this play 
terrible. But even the chap who's quite sympathetic, Mary's admirer, once, oh, he yeah. once he finds out about her, you know, you can't see him for dust. So they're either kind of sanctimonious or they're braggarts or they're drunkards or they're, they're confidence yeah. tricksters. Um, do you feel that men are... <laughs> Under attack in this in this play, Kieran. I do, yeah, yeah. without a doubt. I mean, I, I think, and uh, well, and he has the men as fantasists and the women as realists, mm. and I think it's just based on on the actual truth of the times that John O'Casey saw these women as the entire base of the fabric that kept everything sur uh, surviving, because without them, they would just mm. crumble entirely, and then they were enthralled to the rules of the time, which were the religious rules, and therefore uh, the priests were very uh, in control of them about what they do, who then kept the whole fam family fabric together. I mean, it wasn't entirely... Comp the whole of Dublin was not like this, no. you know, but there was an element in the working-class uh, society that it was as bitter as you could imagine. And, uh, you know, when they take to pulling down the banisters to burn in the winter just for fire, to grab a bit of coal off the street that came off the back of a lorry, to get one loaf of bread for a family, and then you find out that, in fact, they'd find, well, actually, the woman in the house has cut a third of it off because there's another family up there who's got absolutely nothing, so you give them a third of what you've got. I mean, that was the sort of the modus operandi of the day. And there would have been really. maybe as many as 80 people living in this house. You know, this was before the Act of Union in 1800, these houses were owned by the great and the good, and they were, beautiful. you know, the most beautiful, beautiful Georgian yeah. houses. <clears throat> and then when, after the Act of Union, they all went back to England, these houses were taken over by sort of racketeering landlords, and they would fit as many people as they could possibly get in and get as much money out of them as possible. <clears throat> so there'd be as many as 80 to 100 people in one of these houses. It's almost... Uh, Unbelievable now. Too. How much should we, are we expected to think about Ireland's current economic situation through the what happens to the boils when they go on a spending spree without actually having any well, money I, I, to I justify? Well, I think the resonances from mm -hmm. we were when we were rehearsing, you know, it was in the newspapers every day: mm. um, repossessions, evictions. Um, people spending where there was no money to be spent. Um, the, a whole sorry tale of Ireland. It seemed that the play um, had resonances for almost everything that was happening on a daily basis in Dublin while we were there. It was extraordinary. And, and I think, you know, one of the first things we talked about, about these, the issues that are uh, being addressed in the play, are, are in, you know, they're, in, they're, they're, they're universal issues. They're not um, <clears throat> just confined to Ireland. Th these, this sort of um, madness that <laughs> the boils go in for has been going on everywhere. Yes. Um, and, and you see it and you sort of you despair. So it could be set in Athens or it Lisbon, perhaps, as much as, as, much as Dublin. Yeah. Um, now, tell us about the... I mean, I was just chatting to Conor McPherson on this very stage a couple of weeks ago, and I just was going through the list of world-class Irish playwrights, and it's absolutely astonishing that uh, such a relatively small country, and per head of population, you have produced, you know, from, you know, Witcherley and Sheridan, I think Witcherley was born in Dublin, wasn't it? Someone will correct mm -hmm. me if I'm wrong. 
right up to Macpherson, Vigo, Casey and Beckett, and I, mean, I could go on. Why is that? Why is the theatre such a natural uh, arena for Irish people? Drink. <laughs> no! <laughs> Storytelling no. Story is telling. absolutely wrong. <laughs> no. Storytelling and drink helped. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lubricated by drink. But uh, in, in, uh, in Irish, there's a word, uh, shanaki. And in the old days, a shanaki was basically a storyteller. And whoever he was, and it was handed down from generation to generation. Indeed, like they do in Africa. Mm. It's like Burkina Faso. There's generations of people whose trade was storytelling. And in Ireland, that was there too. And they'd go into the villages, and people would gather around uh, you know, from right. the 16th century, 15, just going into the places and saying, this is the entertainment for tonight, and weave a story for two hours. So I think something comes down yeah, that of Yeah, and, and our tradition is less a written tradition than well, an oral, oral tradition. Yeah. Um, my grandparents were travelling players who travelled all over Ireland in a little company of actors. They were called fit-ups. And they would go to a different town every night. And they would set up, and, and I think that's the origin of um, Lock Up Your Daughters, the actors are coming, or, or whatever it is. Um, but they used, to, they used to come and they used to beg, borrow, or steal furniture and props from the town. And then they would set it up and everyone... Off they go. Oh, yeah. Off they go. The other thing about, um, well, I don't know, it's only a, a theory to propound, that when a culture has its uh, language taken away from it, that they then have to uh, learn the new language, but it's the new language is sort of dances to another soul. So although it is, they, all these writers were writing in English, uh, the English vocabulary, they had a different soul from their, handed down through the Irish way of seeing things, which then gave this kind of music to maybe however they wrote it, because it wasn't through the English, System, through the Irish system, but through the, 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 the use of the English language. And I think that probably could, or possibly, or maybe not, um, ah, be a reason as well. I met a little kid in County Clare once, and he can't have been more than seven. And um, I can't whether he was begging or something, he might have been begging. And I said, are you hungry? And he said, I could eat the road to Dublin and it twisting and turning. He <laughs> <laughs> was seven years old. I was just completely gobsmacked. You know, he was a little urchin. Oh, that's sweet. And I had uh, somebody told me a story about uh, one of the travellers going into a, a bar in the west of Ireland, very irate, very angry, and somebody says, what's the matter with you? And he says, uh, somebody's stolen me horse. And he said, do you have you any idea who it was? He says, I think I do. He had a salmon eye and a navy blue smile. <laughs> And the guy goes, what? And, and he worked it out. He said it, he had one eye glazed over and was unshaven. <laughs> so that's what I mean. Language is English, but they've made it dance. That's so poetic. And is the, I mean, the theatre more central than to Irish culture, do you think, is it, than it might be over here? Or is it still the preserve of uh, well, it was it. educated, cultured, that, that, affluent that, people? I, I'm never sure about that, because... You know, what dictates all that, Al, is, economics. is the mm -hmm. economics. If you can give cheap theatre tickets, you will have audiences coming in from every conceivable corner of your country and, and, and all ages and all classes. Mm -hmm. If you, um, you know, jack up your prices to such an extent that only a very privileged few can afford to pay for them, then you're... You know, you're limiting your audience. And 
we as actors, uh, you know, sometimes despair about the demographic of audiences. Um, but I've been very cheered on this one, because in Dublin we had an amazing demographic mm. uh, of ages and class and everything. And, and at the National it has been also quite um, cheering, the, the, the demographic. Mm -hmm. So who knows, because of the cheap tickets yes, that you get from the travel X, yeah. Yeah, Initiatives like that are of crucial importance <clears throat> to, to making theatre well, central to a country's and is theatre central to Dublin's cultural life? I mean, I always get a chuckle. I hope it's true. You know, the, whoever it was, the wag that uh, compared the Abbey and the Gate when McLearmore and Hilton Edwards are running it and called it Sodom and Begora, didn't they? <laughs> 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 that, they I did, yeah. Apocryphal, did somebody actually That's coin lovely. that? Oh, oh no, that would have that. That would have coined, yeah. <laughs> Referring to yeah. the, yeah. the, uh, the nationalist drama in the Abbey and the, oh, the, big the sort of camp goings yes. on at the gate. Yeah. But is this, is this Dublin theatre, does theatre kind of well, matter to Dublin? Sorry, life? I'm answering too many questions. No. But I do remember when we were doing Three Sisters, myself and my two sisters and my dad playing Chabotigan, and we were doing Three Sisters in uh, the gate. And um, I, I had a bike. And um, I, I remember I was riding along on my bike into rehearsal, and, uh, and there was a bus going by, you know, uh, just an ordinary Dublin bus going by. And um, the conductor was, <laughs> as I was standing at the, at the uh, traffic lights, and the conductor said, good luck with the three sisters. <laughs> so I said, God, everybody in Dublin knows about It's great. So I think, uh, yeah, I think theatre, um, well, it's smaller, mm -hmm. of course, mm -hmm. Dublin and Ireland. So um, I think maybe they know more about what's going right, on. Right, quite. <laughs> well, let's talk about you individually. I mean, I was interested, looking into it, Sinead, that how, when you started your career, you mentioned that you'd, you'd been shown the door at the, uh, the Abbey, but you were something of a film star in those days. I mean, you actually starred opposite Peter Sellers, no less, and Hoffman. I did. Now, for a, a young lady, he must have been, was he as difficult as oh, God, his no. reputation suggested? Oh, or? no, he was absolutely wonderful. Good. I, I had been warned by many folk about how difficult he was. Um, but he was the most generous-spirited actor uh, to work with because it was virtually a two-hander, this movie. So we were together for three months and working together every day. And I actually had uh, the director, Alvin Rakoff, came in to see Junior last oh, night. Really? So we were reminiscing, yes. so it's fresh in my mm -hmm. mind. And um, no, he was, he was wonderful. And he insisted that I got equal billing. You know, I was, I was an Irish peasant of, of 23. And um, wh when the movie came out, it was Peter Sellers, Sinead Cusack. Extraordinary. That way around? <laughs> <laughs> Sack your agent. Yeah. But I noticed that you also were in Tam Lin, which was Roddy McDowell directed with Ava Gardner beheading the car. Did you have any scenes with Ava? I did. Many yes. scenes with Ava. The film never came out. No, though. it never came out. <laughs> <laughs> Enough any said. Reason? Enough said. <laughs> Just a bad movie. Oh, I worked with them all. Yes. Bert Lancaster. <laughs> and, yeah. So where you, was the plan then to concentrate on film? Oh, no. Oh, absolutely the reverse. Mm -hmm. I had no interest in film. I, I, I just wanted to play the classics. Yes. I mean, I was as narrow as that. 
I wanted to play the great classics. And my dad had said to me when I was about uh, 16 or 17, you'll never be a stage actress. You haven't got the equipment. So I've spent all my adult <laughs> life trying to disprove that theory. Um, so all I ever wanted to do was do the classics. So the film and television actually mm. interrupted what was my mm. life plan, which was to... Um, and you eventually got to Stratford. I eventually got very, very old, very long in the tooth. I was about 30 when, I'm oh, gosh. when they let me in yes. there. <laughs> well, it just shows why persistence can lead, you know. Never give up, never, never give up. up. Now, as you, you know, as Renee mentioned, she comes from a well-known theatrical family, even if father wasn't too encouraging in those early days. With you, Kieran, you didn't have that, but you did have a, an amateur actress mother who was mad keen on the business. And mm. Was she your kind of influence, do you think, heading, um, pointing I, you in that direction? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, she did. Uh, she was involved with a few different amateur mm. companies, and... Uh, uh, so when I was like in my, uh, as well as early teens, I'd go and see some uh, amateur plays. In the north of Ireland, it's a, it's a big deal, the amateur theatrical scene. And I sort of got involved a bit um, through that. But I think she'd always say it was from my father, who was a, who was a doctor, he was a GP. Uh, and um, I think he cured more people, not by his, his uh, ability in the medical department, but the fact that he was just... Uh, he healed people by storytelling, or the powers of words, and uh, you know they seemed to feel better after he left them. Uh, um, I don't know how he worked that out, but um, uh, so I, I don't know. I suppose our influences come yes. in many, many and very different ways. But, but you were—you were reading for a law degree at Queen's, and then you decided to jack that in and try Farada instead. Was that quite? A, did that cause a certain amount of friction in the family? You know. No, I think the law department at Queen's had decided <laughs> they had had enough of me after six months of one lecture and one tutorial. Yes. Um, and it was sort of kindly suggested that I mm -hmm. should, um, A, find another trade mm -hmm. and ply it elsewhere. Uh, uh, but I was very fortunate. Like, you, you never know who guides us at times in life. And I, there was a, a law tutor, a very young law tutor there, uh, Des Marinen, who was nominally one of my tutors uh, and would have been had I turned up. But um, he was actually a senior at the school I was at St. Malachy's and he, he had an idea that I was maybe, uh, I shouldn't be there, but I also, he was able to talk to my parents when I rather naively didn't know what to do, that maybe it would be a good idea to get a transfer to uh, a university, maybe doing English and drama. And then just after that, we decided, well, let's have a, a go at mm. trying some of the theatre schools. And when your earliest uh, places that you flourished was, of course, the Glasgow Citizens Theatre, now run by three amazing personalities and Havergal, Prowse and MacDonald. How, how were those years for you? I mean, were they formative? Were oh, they, they, yeah, you know, they, were, they were completely, because I, I was at Radha, and then I didn't know what I, I wasn't... Um, very au fait in the actual art of professionally going about how to get a job. And uh, they took pity on me and asked me up to do a pantomime, um, uh, which was my, really my first professional job, uh, Giles Havergill. And in fact, I was a student and I had a big beard and really long hair. And uh, they dubbed me the Charlie Manson of the chorus. <laughs> because the other three guys all had rosy cheeks, were all freshly shaved. <laughs> And I turned up looking like a, a killer. But um, they cleaned me up, obviously, because the kids wouldn't have tolerated it. <laughs> and, um, and then they asked me to stay on. And, and there, uh, Giles Havergill, who I just saw recently, which mm -hmm. is lovely to have 
some of them, and Philip Prowse, who's one of great designer director, and uh, God rest him, Robert David MacDonald, who was a, a great man of literature, spoke six languages, did a huge amount of translations, and uh, over about six or seven seasons, I was there doing all these extraordinary yeah. European plays. Yeah, you know, like you worked non-stop. Goethe you? and Schiller and Beaumarchais mm. and de Musset, and it was kind of weird, way up in the Gorbals in Glasgow, but it was kind of a magical time. It was a great time. And I must ask you about doing the Mahabharata with uh, Peter Brook. I mean, that must have been another extraordinary experience for you. Yeah, yeah, it's strange. I, I think I find myself always liking to be in companies of people mm. where you uh, share it around a bit. People take different responsibilities. But again, that was, uh, was almost the first time I worked out of the islands of uh, Britain and Ireland and went into Europe. And uh, it's just like anything. Suddenly you go like, oh, gosh, it's very big out here and very different. And uh, we worked in a company that was 27 people and 15 different nationalities. And it sort of uh, puts your head into a kind of tailspin because you don't know where you stand anymore. You know, what you had learned in theatre or what you, who you were as a person, what culture you had, suddenly there was this huge movement of different thoughts and behaviour and morals and codes. And, uh, I mean, that was a huge adventure for me, mm. just to get a whole slice of a small slice of the globe and that. I mean, 15 different nationalities all working on the same yeah. project is... I mean, did Brooke, who is, of course, has this... Comes across as a guru. I'm sure he doesn't mean to be, but no. he has that the sense of him handing down tablets of wisdom. Is there anything that he said to you that you've always uh, borne in mind or has uh, helped you in your career? Uh, no, because it's just the work. It's almost trying to shed a lot of the stuff that you put on as actors, mm. trying to sometimes get rid of it and just be as truthful as you can to let the soul out while covering it with idiosyncrasies, mm. etc. But I mean, the funniest story, one of the funniest stories I heard Peter tell, because he was a great raconteur, you know, I know you said people say he's a guru and he sits dispensing pearls of woman, but he's a, he's a great observer of things. And uh, we were doing the Mahabharata in, uh, in, a, in a studio in, uh, in Los Angeles for some reason, he was traveling the world. And he went up one morning early on top of the uh, apartments, there was a swimming pool, and um, he said he was going for an early morning dip at six. And... Uh, he started swimming, and as he was swimming this way, he suddenly saw a rather obese man walking towards the pool. And he touched it, and he just observed it, and he turned around, he started swimming back the other way, and suddenly the whole pool, water, started going like this. And he thought, my God, he's immense. Uh, but it was an earthquake. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you just mentioned the concept. Because we were on this earthquake and everything was going like that suddenly. And he thinks it's just this guy who's jumped in the pool. I thought anyway. you were going to say Orson Welles had <laughs> dived into the pool. No. Now, talking of going around the world, Sinead, you'd have done that recently with the Bridge Project, didn't you? This is Anglo-Irish-American cast. Now, it's a very interesting uh, project. Did you feel that it was sort of recognisably different in any way because of the different nationalities that were involved in... Um, well, I've done, a, I, I've done a world tour before. Mm -hmm. I did a world tour with um, Much Ado About Nothing. Yeah. Um, so I, um, I, I... When you're doing a world tour, it's quite extraordinary. I think it's completely mystical. But when you go to a different city every week or every two weeks, the dynamic of the play changes. Now, I don't understand why that is. Because, but it means that you out there, the audience, is as much a part 
of the evening of Juno and the Peacock, or the evening of Cherry Orchard, or the evening of Much Ado About Nothing, because you'd find that the, the play would subtly change um, from country to country, depending on, oh, I don't know, like when we were playing in Prague, it was before the Velvet Revolution, so you had a lot of apparatchiks out there who, um, you know, actually were keeping actors out of the theatre because they were <clears throat> persona non grata. Um, and, and so the play had a political uh, feeling to it. When we went to America, uh, the feisty um, feminist uh, in Beatrice came to the fore. Um, in, in foreign countries, interestingly enough, it's always the narrative, the storytelling they follow. They're not really interested in bits of comedy business. So the play takes on a different shape. When you were in Stratford with Derek Jacobi playing uh, Benedict. Benedict, you know, mm. there were wonderful laughs for stuff that he had invented. The foreign audiences weren't interested at all in what Derek had invented. What they wanted was the narrative. So they wanted it clearly <coughs> and clearly told. So there'd be shifts. So I, I, I remembered mm. all this mystery when I was doing the bridge project, and exactly the same thing mm -hmm. happened. But of course, with the ROC, it was a sort of, not a polyglot company, but there wasn't the different nationalities as there was in the bridge project. Did you feel, was there any sense that different kind of theatrical traditions merging in the productions? Oh, without at a all? doubt. Yeah? But you see, I think it's like what Kieran says. When you get 15 nationalities, as he had, and in our case, maybe three or four nationalities, you know, the Irish, Scot, American, English, um, that you do get an input, a historical or a moral or a political input into the mix of the rehearsal room that creates the production <coughs> that Excuse is me. finally presented. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, there were tensions between the Americans and the English, <laughs> definitely. Um, but they were, they were healthy tensions, and we were able to use them. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, I, I love touring. I just love the business of touring. I find <coughs> it um, very exciting. Ladies and gentlemen, please show our appreciation for Judith Cusack and Homer Simpson. I mean, <laughs> Kieran Hines. <laughs>